God is good and faithful, and I'm thankful for uh, all that he did. You know, I, 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 I really didn't know where we were going this morning until I woke up this morning. And what I realized is just my heart is still in John 13, which is where I, I've been this week. And every time I would try and, and get in Colossians, look at that, I, I just, it just my heart is not there. It'll be there again, but uh, I've been with God for some time in John 13 and just, just sense that, that God would have me to share uh, some of that with you. Obviously, not all of it, but it was really a great week, and one of the highlights for me personally was many of you know Eliseo Gomez, missionary to Spain. I was blessed many years ago to disciple Eliseo. Eliseo discipled a guy by the name of Andrew Ong, one of the pastors here at MBT. Andrew Ong discipled a young man by the name of Manket. And so Manket accompanied me this week, and that was fantastic. Uh, just to spend a week with him and just watching him serve. Man, I, you know, he, he helped me. He really did help me. And there were a few times where I felt like a cheerleader and I wanted pom-poms. Right? Few things light you up like seeing God use men that you know, men that you love, and men that, that you've had maybe a little hand uh, in their growth and development. And so just watching Man Kit just set my heart on fire. Uh, he's a servant, and he gets it. So John chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Up until John chapter 12, Jesus has been talking about his hour that's coming. And you get to John chapter 12 and verse 23, he says, my hour is come. This is the hour that refers to his death, burial, and resurrection. And you keep reading in John chapter 12, and you get to verse 27, and he says, this is the very reason that I came. I came for this hour. And so being at the end of his earthly ministry, we get to chapter 13, and from chapters 13 through 17, his focus is on preparing his disciples for his departure. Because it's getting ready to happen very, very soon. And it is in chapter 13 that we see Jesus as the perfect embodiment of a servant. Pure perfection. If you want to know what a servant looks like, you just spend some time in John chapter 13. Now, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, without question was and is and forever will be the greatest event in human history. You say, well, what about the cross? What about the birth of Christ? None of that means anything if he doesn't raise from the dead. Amen. It is and it was the greatest event in human history. Now, here's what I want to give you. I want to give you a very close second. A very close second is what you have right here in John chapter 13 because we know for a fact that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. Amen. That is who he was. We saw in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's who he is. But yet, he chose to humble himself and wash the dirty feet of his disciples. God, the omnipotent, the all-powerful, in human flesh, chose to humble himself 
and wash the dirty feet of his disciples. If there were any feet that were worthy or deserving to be washed in the upper room that night, it was his. And the scene goes next level when you consider the opening statement of verse 12. Would you look at it? So after he had washed their feet. So after he had washed their feet. That included Peter. Who very soon. Was about to deny him three times. That included Judas, who had stolen from him. He was the keeper of the bag, and he was stealing money. And who was plotting behind his back with the Pharisees, scribes, and chief priests to have him captured and crucified. Who had opened his heart to Satan. He washed his feet. And as we often do, we overlook the rest of them, the rest of the ten, because as you read on, you understand that they all forsook him and fled. Every last one of them. And he washed their feet. He humbled himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and washed the feet of men. Who would rip his heart out. Be not mistaken. Even though Jesus knew that was coming. He had and has a heart. It hurt. The entire world. Including his own. Turned their back on him. And he washed their dirty feet. This was a job that was usually reserved for a slave at this time. And he did it. And he did it for two primary reasons. One was to provide us with a picture of the sanctification process for the believer. This was and is not an ordinance to be followed. Nothing wrong with having you know, feet washing ceremonies or anything like that. But that was not the point. This was not an ordinance. To be equated with baptism and the Lord's Supper. It was not that at all. was not the intent. But what you have here is you have a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who according to John 1.1 was and is the word. Washing the feet of the believer. Just as feet became dirty at this time from walking in the world. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today, we too get dirty as we live and walk in this world. Well, how do we stay clean? Well, as you read on in John 13, of course, you come to chapter 17, where you see that high priestly prayer of Christ for his own. And he prays to the Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's how we stay clean. Ephesians 5.26 that he, Christ, might sanctify and cleanse it, that's the church, with the washing of water by the word. So this is the picture that you're given in this ceremony or, or, or this, this act of Jesus washing the feet of his own. Because this is how the believer stays clean. 
the believer stays clean by washing in the water of the Word of God day in and day out. But the other reason is given in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. It was to show them how to serve. Show them how to serve. Jesus could have given them a parable, but he didn't do that. He chose to give them a living example. I want to show you what to do. And that's where I've been this week, just looking at a true servant and trusting God to unpack that for us. But after verse 15, we come to verse 16, obviously. And John 13, 16, what it does is, is it brings us to a crescendo point in this lesson. It brings us to that point in music, a crescendo is the loudest point reached in a gradually increasing sound. In other words, everything in that musical piece from the beginning is ramping and building up to this point of crescendo where there's just this explosion of sound. I'll share a story with you. It's been a couple years ago now, but uh, you all know Jeff Gray. I love Jeff Gray. I love all of you. I love Jeff Gray. Uh, just a good brother. Love him. Love him dearly. Uh, a few years ago, he, he, uh, he blessed me with two tickets to the Kaufman Center Performing Arts downtown Kansas City. Uh, as many of you know, it is, acoustically speaking, it is one of the finest venues in all of the world. It's spectacular. I've gone a few times, thankfully, and I mean, the sound is just, it's unbelievable, right? Uh, growing up in South Decatur, a suburb of Atlanta, I didn't go to the orchestra of the symphony. So I mean, drove by it a lot, but that wasn't for me, right? And you know Kaufman is not like Arrowhead, right? Arrowhead is crazy and raucous and out of control, not Kaufman. Uh, the guy sitting next to you might be the president of your bank, right? Wearing a nice sport coat and, you know, when it's time to, you know, applause, you just, right? <laughs> You know, it's not Arrowhead, we're, right? So it's just nothing like that. So we get these tickets, and I think, you know, this would be a great date for, for me and Bree, daddy-daughter date. So we get dressed up, and we go, well, I had a sinus infection. And if you ever had one of those, it's just weeks of misery, correct? And one of the things that, that comes with a sinus infection is a cough, it's just like, it's just unrelenting, right? You just cough and cough, and especially at night, it gets worse. So I know that I have this. I'm like, okay, I'm going to medicate and do everything I can because this is the Kaufman. I know it's quiet. You don't cough in the Kaufman, right? Okay? <laughs> so here it is, man. And, and so we, we go see the Vienna Boys Choir. They were amazing, by the way. And I'm, I can feel it. I'm like, here, I got to cough, like, So at one point, they're, 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 in this, they're in this song, and they start really low. I mean, it's almost like a whisper. And then they're gradually increasing. I know a crescendo is coming, but it can't get her fast enough. <laughs> so what I'm doing is, is 
I'm trying to pace my cough with their increase. So, and this poor guy sitting next to me, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, please, come on, come, come, come. And sure enough, they get to the top. They get to the crescendo. And I just let it roll, man. I'm just, and intermission followed after that. And so, Bree, I'm so sorry, sweetheart, but we, we got to go. There's no way I can make it through the second half of this. I'm just, and she was, of course, she was fine. We know that we hit the crescendo in this lesson because of how verse 16 begins. Verily, verily. Now, we tend to dismiss words and phrases that we don't use today. Right, we find them to be irrelevant. But here's something you need to understand about the Lord Jesus Christ. He never wasted words, nor does he waste ink. Every word is pure. Every word matters. And that's a mistake on our part to do that. First of all, you only find the double usage of verily, verily in the Gospel of John. You find verily in other places. But you only find verily, verily in the Gospel of John. You find that nowhere else. And it is only used by Jesus, and each time he used it, it was to stress a high point, a crescendo point in the message or the lesson. Consider some of these. You've heard them. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's a big point. John 5.24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's a big one. How about John 6.32? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. It's a big deal. So when we get to John 13, 16, it should be very clear to us that whatever is coming after verily, verily, you want to make sure you are tuned in. We've reached a crescendo point in the lesson. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Up until this point, Jesus has been going back and forth in, in battle and in war with the religious leaders of Israel over his identity. Who is he? In their minds, he had committed blasphemy by making himself equal with God, which was the truth. But in the function of the Godhead Trinity, Jesus was not and he is not greater than God. That's his point in verse 16. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Now, if that's true in the Godhead Trinity, and it is, then what does that mean for us? It means the servant, that's us, is not greater than his Lord, that's him. Now, having been saved for over 26 years now, I've come to learn something about us one of the issues that believers struggle with greatly after their salvation, guess what? Their identity. They struggle with it. Who are they now? 
Who are they now? The Bible was clear that we are no longer who we used to be because we are new creatures in Christ. Paul, who before he came to faith in Christ, would have told you that he was circumcised the eighth day. He would have told you that he was of the stock of Israel, that he was of the very prestigious tribe of Benjamin. That he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that he was a Pharisee, that he was zealous in the law. Listen, in the flesh, all of those things meant something at that time. Again, we look back at all of that and we can see the vanity in it and we can see the self-righteousness and it was all of that. However, (laughs) everything that I just read to you about who Paul was in his day... He was the man. That's who he was. He was was not a name that you would overlook. But after his salvation, listen to how he described himself because it's so drastically different. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God. Subconsciously, when we hear that word servant, we envision a waiter at Chili's. Or maybe a maid. And that's not altogether off, except it's not altogether biblical. Because in the biblical sense, what Paul was communicating in all those verses and many more was that he was the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the biblical sense, that is a servant. He was the slave of Christ. That's how Paul viewed himself. And in viewing himself that way, he understood that he was not greater than his Lord. He understood that. One of the challenges to this is what the Bible refers to in 1 John 2.16 as the pride of life. Because the pride of life, listen, the focus in the pride of life is anti-John 3.30. A very basic verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. The focus in the pride of life is I must increase. That's the focus in the pride. Listen, be someone. Become something. Be a big shot. Be a big deal. Build your name. And you see this. Listen, I, I, I don't have any... I don't have an axe to grind about social media or any of that stuff. If you use it, praise God, use it to the glory of God. But one of the things that I do notice and have noticed, in some cases, as I've been exposed to different things, is for more than a few believers, their social media platform serves them with the opportunity to say, look at me. I'm a big deal. I'm a big shot. Let me tell you all about my life. Let me increase. The pride of life celebrates having servants, not being one. The pride of life says, make a name for yourself. 
not about his name, it's about yours. And without even realizing it, many believers are at war with Christ over this because they want to be greater than him. Paul understood this at the moment of his conversion. And at that moment, he provided us with the greatest question that every true servant finds themselves preoccupied with every single day. Remember what he asked when he encountered the risen Christ on that Damascus road? In Acts 9 verse 6, remember what he asked? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's the question. That's the question. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? This is the preoccupation of every true servant every single day. Lord, what would you have me to do? Not, Lord, here's what I want to do. Would you please bless that? No. I've seen people get saved and maybe they held a high position in their company. Maybe they had a recognizable name in the world. But in Christ, they're not a VP. Or an NFL player. Or a CEO. No, they are now the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who they are. The church at Corinth wrestled with this and was judging Paul after the flesh. Listen very carefully. We've, we've talked about this before, but it's worth revisiting. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man so account of us. So, hey, you guys are looking to measure us. Or you're looking to judge us. You're looking to do some inventory. You're looking to do some reconciling about who we are. Let me help you with that. Let me tell you who we are. As the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We are ministers and stewards. Ministers of Christ. Here's what Paul was saying. He was saying, you know what? We're just under oarsmen. That's who we are. That's what that word means. These were slaves who rode in the who rode in the galley of ships. One of the lowest, dirtiest, grittiest jobs that you could do at that time. That's who we are. Not a big deal. Not a celebrity. Not looking to make the front cover of a Christian magazine. Not looking to have millions of followers on YouTube. Not looking to have this slick, polished, pristine life. No, we're just slaves who row in the... That's who we're like. We're not superstars. Don't ask for my autograph. I'm not that guy. Stewards. You know what stewards were? They were slaves who had been entrusted with authority... That's who they were. Paul did not get saved to only turn to Christ and try and sell Christ on who he was and what he could bring to the table. 
Let me, let me show you how well you've done, Lord, by saving me. Let me tell you what I can do for you. No. It was simple. Lord, what would you have me to do? That would be your heart the moment you open your eyes every day. And you know how he's going to tell you that? How he's going to answer that question? You know what comes after that, don't you? Because the minute you open that book and you place yourself at his feet, he's going to tell you exactly what it is that he would have you to do. And the reason it owned Paul's mind and heart, and the reason that it owns the mind and heart of every true servant is for, the, for, is for this key observation. True servants know their place. True servants know their place. They know their place. A great amount of time in the Christian life is spent on the Lord Jesus Christ trying to help you and trying to help me discover our place. You're not greater than me. So much of this has to do with Laodicean Christianity. Nothing should be hard. We should never be inconvenienced. God forbid that we suffer on any level. If we're honest, if we're honest in this church age, and especially in this country, we find the scene of John 13 repulsive. If we're honest. We worship our suburban lifestyle. We drive nice vehicles. We live in modern homes with every bell and whistle and convenience that one could imagine. We have nice appliances in every room. And if the AC is not working just right on a very warm summer day, we're on the phone demanding that we get this repaired. I want it two degrees cooler in my house. So the idea of lowering ourselves and doing something like this is offensive. Why serve when you can be served? That's the American spirit, isn't it? Isn't that what leadership has become? How many people can you get to serve you? Versus leadership affords me a platform and an opportunity to serve many people. We've lost that. And one of the preoccupations in Laodicea is... Don't forget this, her rights. That's her definition, is it not? Laodicea, justice or rights of the people. That sound familiar these days? Here's a problem with that. Please tune in. When God saved you, you became his slave. When God saved you, you became a slave. And guess what? You show me in Scripture where a slave had any rights. You won't find it. Because they didn't have any. Now, does that mean that 
people have a license to abuse you and, 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 and to exercise injustice, God forbid. But I am making the point. If you are a true servant of Christ, you are never preoccupied with your rights. Here's where we're going. True servants are never preoccupied with their rights or their name. Ever. My rights, my name, are irrelevant. Here's the danger in being preoccupied with your rights. Please hang in there with me. Don't miss this. It is a short trip to demanding and expecting to be treated better than Jesus when he was here. So wait a minute. I'm to be just like him. I am his slave. I am his servant. I'm not greater than him, yet I expect and demand that I be treated better than he was. There is something wrong with that. In the Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus presented as God's servant. We covered that. But here's something you do not find in those opening chapters of the Gospel of Mark. You know what that is? You do not find a genealogy. You know why? Because that is irrelevant to a servant. A servant has no genealogy. A genealogy is not appropriate. It's not fitting for a slave. Is this making sense? True servants are not caught up with who they are, where they come from, what they can do, what they're about, what their interests are. They're not about any of that. Matthew 10, 24, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Every true disciple is a true servant. And they are only about serving and pleasing their master. One of my favorite chapters in all of God's word is Genesis 24. You know it. This is where Abraham sends out his eldest servant to secure a bride for his son Isaac. We know from comparing scripture with scripture that this eldest servant would have been Eliezer. But what's unique about Genesis 24 is you do not find Eliezer's name mentioned. Not one time. Here's what you do find, though, in Genesis 24. In Genesis 24, you find the first mention of a phrase that goes like this. My master. My master. And in addition to that, that phrase, my master, in that chapter is used 19 times. My master, 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 my master. Eliezer was absolutely fixated on serving and pleasing his master. You don't even find his name mentioned there. The name you see, my master, my master, my master, my master. The heart of every true servant is to be a nameless servant. That is the heart of every true servant. Is to be a nameless servant. My name doesn't matter. 
you don't have to remember my birthday. You don't have to say good morning to me. You don't owe me any special opportunity. You owe me nothing. But I owe you everything. I owe you my life. Do you know the only, we said it before, the only thing that servants are preoccupied with is serving. That's it. It is never about them. You can't offend them. You can't hurt their feelings. You can't step on their toes. You know why? Because they have no expectations. Well, I think they've, they they didn't ask me to do that, or nobody thanked me, or they didn't recognize me, or they didn't call my name, or, or, or why wasn't I asked? <laughs> Listen, that type of thinking is absolutely foreign to a true servant, if not blasphemous. True servants live to serve. That's it. Is that your heart? To be a nameless servant where the only name that matters is his name. 